0: If you have your Bible, please open it to Matthew chapter 5. We will be looking at verses 21 through 26. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Here is God's word to his beloved sons and daughters. This is Christ speaking. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell, fire of hell. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Least your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's holy, inerrant, perfect word. Please pray with and for me. Holy Spirit, as we come to the preaching of of this word, we pray that you, because you are the one who leads us into all truth, we pray that you will lead us into truth today, that we don't understand scripture because we're smart, or because we went to seminary, or because we read a whole bunch of books. We understand scripture because the Holy Spirit gives us understanding. So Holy Spirit, we thank you. We thank you that you are a deposit that guarantees our inheritance. We thank you that you are a helper. We thank you that you even intercede when we don't know what to pray for. You pray for us. You are a supernatural power that lives in us. And we need you, all of you, not just parts of who you are, spirit. So give us the humility to understand. Give us the humility to hear and receive from the word. And I pray for all this in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus desires for his, his people to be wholehearted, just like God the Father is wholehearted. And, and his people, his people are those who have saving faith in him. His people are men and women, kids who trust him as redeemer and, and savior. People who surrender to him as Lord and king. And Jesus wants his people to grow into being whole people. To follow the way of wholeness. As I said last week, as I said last week, the, the way of wholeness is complete allegiance to a covenant relationship with God as your father and you as his child. It's complete allegiance to a, 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 lo- a local covenant community where you place value on being in genuine relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. To put it simply, the way of wholeness is loving God and loving people as yourself. Loving other Christians and even loving non-Christians. TVC kids, were are the two greatest commandments in the Bible? Yes, love God and love your neighbor. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew twenty-two forty, 40, Christ says all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Galatians 5, 14 says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The way of wholeness thinks is loving God and loving other people. And this kind of love is a practical application of the kind of righteousness that exceeds that of the, the scribes and Pharisees. And in Matthew 5. Verses 21 through 47, Christ illustrates this point with six examples. And we're going to dive into the first example today in verses 21 through 26. It is an example about the preservation of life. What breaks the preservation of life and what builds the preservation. What breaks it and what builds it. He be, Christ begins this passage with a phrase that we've already discussed, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. This phrase isn't, thus says the Lord. Is not intended to be God's intent for the law and the prophets. Instead, this phrase is is Israel's traditional and and historical and cultural understanding and interpretation of the law that is expressed in verse 21. The phrase communicates a strictly literal interpretation. Its focus is on the letter of the law. And that law is the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment. It's one of God's Ten Commandments. It's part of the moral law. And it protects the sanctity of life, which means all human beings, all human life is valuable from the womb to the tomb. It acknowledges that all human beings have dignity and self-worth because each are created in the image of God. Do I need to bring out the amen sign? Okay. The Sixth Commandment seeks to preserve life against that which breaks it. The physical crime of murder can do that. Murderous actions break the preservation of life. And so what is the Sixth Commandment? What, what does it prohibit? The Sixth Commandment says thou shall not kill. You shall not commit murder. The letter of this law means you shall not murder with malice or premedita- premeditation. The larger, the larger catechism says you shall not take away a person's life without just cause, like public justice, lawful war and self-defense in the old testament people found guilty of such a crime face a death penalty they have judgment they face consequences even in our society there's judgment and consequences for people who are found guilty of various degrees of murder the phrase in verse 21 reinforces that point you have heard that it was said to the people of old you shall not murder anyone who murders will face judgment. Keep in mind what this phrase represents. It represents the historical, cultural, and traditional understanding of the Sixth Commandment by the Jewish people. And their understanding is strictly a literal interpretation. They limited their understanding to being the physical crime of murder. And such an understanding will lead to a certain belief, a belief that says, if I don't murder anyone with malice, or premeditation, then I have done all that is required in the Sixth Commandment. If I if I don't kill anybody, then I'm doing good. The strictly literal interpretation of this commandment is the issue that Christ addresses because the Sixth Commandment implies a little more than just that. In his article, The Cruelty of a Called-Out Culture, David Brooks discussed the terrifying process of the called-out culture. He describes it as a culture that has adopted a binary thinking about human beings. He writes, you see how once you adopt a binary tribal mentality, us versus them, punk versus non-punk, a victim versus accuser, you immediately depersonalize everything. You reduce complex human beings to simple good versus evil. You eliminate any proportion. You certainly, there's no distinction between R. Kelly than a high school girl sending a mean emoji no difference limiting the sixth commandment to only prohibiting murderous actions can lead to binary thinking about people categorizing murderers as the evil people and non-murderers those are the good people when you place your life side by side of a murderer what do you say to yourself honestly When when you see mass shootings in America and you see the person who did it, what do you honestly say about that person's life in your life? You feel a little self-justified. You may pat yourself on the back. You say, I've never murdered anybody, so I'm good. Now, that person's evil. That person's bad. That person deserves judgment. That person is evil. I'm not like that. I'm a good, law-abiding citizen. But Jesus says to you, Take a deeper look for the sixth commandment doesn't prohibit murderous actions, that there's more here than just a literal interpretation of this commandment. There's more here than just a letter of the law. So in verse 22, he says, but I say to you. They said to you, but now I say to you, that's power. That's Christ getting ready to correct what has traditionally been taught. He gets ready to speak with authority. And what he says is thus says the Lord. That's yes, amen. He prepares to give the fuller meaning and demand of his commandment. He shows the kind of conviction and attitude and behaviors that he desires for his people. Jesus is going to focus on the spirit of the law, connecting it to heart and motives. Jesus reveals there's two other ways you can murder another person without even laying a hand on them. Two other forms of murder that can break the preservation of life. Two other forms that can lead to judgment. One Christian says, Jesus' whole purpose is to show all that is included in the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. Killing does not only mean destroying life physically. It means destroying life physically. It means trying to destroy the spirit and soul also, destroying the person in any shape or form. The first form that Christ discussed is what I call a murderous heart, a heart that kills. Listen to what he says in verse 22a. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Wow. Angry? That makes me liable. That puts me on the same level with someone who actually kills somebody. This anger isn't righteous anger. It's sinful anger. And all anger begins in the heart. Please know that. It expresses itself through internal rage and hatred, envy, malice, resentfulness, revenge, and even indifference. A heart that's marinating in those emotions is one as guilty of murder. In such a heart, it thinks evil thoughts about a person. It wishes evil to come upon them. And this type of anger, it can be aggressive and it can be passive. We all The, the aggressive kind, it, it leads to abuse and, and violent behavior. And then you have that passive, aggressive anger, the nonverbal. It's it, it, expressing your body language when your arms are crossed and your nose turned up, your eyebrows and your eye rolling. That's passive-aggressive anger, but it starts here in your heart. Who have you been sinfully, sinfully angry with this week? Who are you still angry with? Are you still angry with your parents? Still angry with a friend, a sibling? Who have you killed in your heart and feel justified in doing so? A murderous heart that breaks the preservation of life. It is not loving your neighbor as yourself. It is not loving God. As James says, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. But do you believe it? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Is that true? Is that true? No, it's not true because words hurt. Words can wound, words can demean, words can cut, words can destroy, words can feed people's fear, words can kill. The second form of of murder that Christ discussed here points to this. This is what I call a murderous tongue, a tongue that kills, a tongue that is a verbal bully. Look at verse 22b. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council, Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hells of fire. The message, Bible says, the simple moral fact is this. Words kill. Words kill. The Greek translation for the word insult means empty-headed, stupid, dumb, idiot. These insults are a verbal attack against a person's intelligence and competence. These are hurtful and demeaning words. If you call someone an idiot, it's degrading to them. The Greek translation for the word fool is similar to insult. It is, a hurtful, it is hurtful name calling, but it's almost like a verbal attack against a person's character. Words that say, you're good for nothing. You're a dishonest piece of trash. You're a loser. You always will be a loser. You are just a scum bag." That's insulting a person's character. Who have you destroyed this week with your tongue? Who have you bullied with your words? Who have you insulted through text messages? Who have you called fool on Facebook, Twitter, and Snapchat? A murderous tongue breaks the preservation of life. It is not loving your neighbor as yourself. Instead, it wounds the image of God in people you got to know that. When you rip someone apart verbally, it wounds the image of God in them. It does. It wounds them. It, it wounds their dignity, their value, and their self-worth. Even for parents, everybody have to be careful of what you say to your kids and how you talk to your spouse because your words can destroy them or your words can build them up. There's power in how you use your tongue. James says in verse, in James 3 in verse 8 through 10 says, the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in his likeness. From the same mouth come blessings and curses. In game six of the NBA Finals, Warriors guard Clay Thompson he rose up to, for a dunk, and he was fouled while in the air. And he came down awkwardly on his left leg, and he, he fell on the court immediately and grabbed his left knee in pain. Now, no one knew the full extent of his injury. Not even Clay knew the full extent of it. So the injury had to be examined in order to diagnose the severity. First, a physical exam was given. And in a physical exam, you're checking for swelling and tenderness. You're moving the knee in different positions to check the range of motion. The next thing you would do is that you would give certain tests. Certain tests will be given to rule out certain things or to confirm certain things, like an X-ray. An X-ray is needed to rule out or confirm a bone fracture. An MRI which creates an image of both the hard and soft tissue in the knee. Then the ultrasound. That is used to check for injuries in ligaments and tendons and muscles of the knee. The result of Clay's injury test revealed a torn ACL in his left knee. A torn ACL tear cannot be diagnosed with a physical exam. An MRI diagnosed the tear before it tests below the surface of the skin. You see, MRI, or X-ray, and ultrasound, they go beyond the physical exam. Jesus is going beyond the physical, and he's getting up underneath the skin with his view of the Sixth Commandment. He is giving you an MRI, he's giving you an X-ray, and he's giving you an ultrasound of your heart to show you what is really there. Because when you look on the outside, the outside don't always tell you what's wrong with the inside. It doesn't tell you. Because you say, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't murdered anybody. That's physical. That's external. I say, yeah, you haven't. But have you seen the x-ray? Have you seen the MRI? Christ is giving you the MRI. He's showing you what exists in the inside of your heart. And Jesus, Jesus, you say Jesus, but Jesus, I haven't did anything. Look at my life, Jesus. And you say, come here for a minute. Come here. (laughs) Let me take a look at this x-ray. Take a look at the results of this MRI. And what do you see? I've murdered people in my heart and with my tongue. That's what I see. And we all have. None of us have clean hands. Is it Jesus intent here to beat us up with this? No way. For the unbeliever, his intent is he wants you to see your need for a savior. If you don't know him, he wants you to look at the MRI of your heart and say, man, my good works won't save me. Because my heart is broken, my heart is separated because they're lost in their sin and separated from God because of it, and if you don't have saving faith in Jesus, then he's inviting you to come. He's showing you this MRI so that you can come to him to receive forgiveness. He's inviting you to be healed he's inviting you to newness of life. He's inviting you to a personal relationship with Him. He's inviting you to freedom. Because you may look good on the outside, but if you take a look at the MRI, you're going to see you're not good on the inside. You're not. He's inviting you to receive Him. Because we know, we all know that most of you know the gospel story. Christ died on that old wrecked cross for all of our sins. Past, present, and future and he rose from the grave and victorious because he paid it all and now the resurrected Jesus is extending his hands out to you calling you into saving faith will you come will you come to be made whole he will forgive murderous actions hearts and tongues will you come you please need to understand how wonderful this grace is the most evil person you know, if that person truly surrenders to Christ, Christ will save them. You need to know that. If that person truly repents, he will receive that person. That's how amazing his grace is. That is how amazing the gospel is. So if you don't know him, will you come? What if you already do know him? What, what is he saying to you in these words? He wants you to see. The spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. He wants you to see the full extent of what the preservation of life means. He wants you to look at that MRI and that x-ray and see you still need him. You still need him. You still need him, just like the unbeliever needs him. Do you see your need of him? Do you see your need of him, saints? No amount of Bible studies and scripture memories is going to change the fact that you're still going to need Jesus. Just like the unbeliever needs him, you need him. Don't let your good works and your spiritual disciplines fool you. You still need Jesus. He desires for his people to be whole. And this wholeness that Christ requires is really an integration of your internal and external self. He wants the way you look on the outside should match the inside. That's what he wants. He wants your heart to be reflective of the way way you actually live. They go together. They should match. This means loving God and loving people with our actions, our thoughts, and our tongues. That's what it means. Loving them with our words and our actions and our hearts. Now, saints, does loving with actions, thoughts, and tongues require you to be perfect? and issue free? No. It just requires you to be on a path to holiness where there's a consistency between your internal and external life. And the Holy Spirit, the one that I prayed to before I began the service, he is the one who helps you. He empowers you on the path to wholeness. He blesses you with the humility and the empathy that you need. He enables you to take responsibility to build life when your sin breaks it. Murderous actions, hearts and tongues are breakers of the preservation of life. But Jesus gives two ways his people can build life when it breaks. He does so with two illustrations. First, reconciliation, reconciliation. Is a builder of life. Do you believe that? Reconciliation is a builder of life. Because reconciliation means peace. Peace between people who are at odds with one another. Making peace when trust is broken. When relationships are broken. Reconciliation means you make things right with people. That's what it means. That's what it means. For you, we sin against one another. Every day with our actions, our anger, and our tongues. And sometimes it can be murderous. And Jesus wants the person responsible to proactively initiate reconciliation with the other person. Keep in mind, he's talking to his people here. He's talking to those who already have faith in him. Look at verse 22 and 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. He's saying, if you are in worship, if you are in worship, getting ready to offer a gift to God and the Holy spirit convicts you and reminds you that someone has something against you, he says, leave your gift there and go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. Christ desires for his people to make reconciliation a priority within the covenant community, you know how I know, you know how I know we don't make it a priority because when stuff happens, you leave and go to another church. That's how I know we don't make it a priority. But there's no that same behavior follows you to the next church, to the next church, to the next church, to the next church, and to the next church. Make it a priority in your relationships that you will pursue reconciliation. When things are broken, you will make it right. He says, go and be reconciled. Reconciliation is personal. Think about that. You can't take place through email, text messages, or on social media. It's face-to-face interaction. It's you sitting down and you looking that person in the eye, a person who is in the image of God just like you, and you're going to make things right with that person. If you remember that your brother and sister has something against you, don't wait on them to come to you. You go to them. Take the initiative. Take the first step. Why should I do that, Pastor? Because Christ took the first step to you. That's why. Because he took the first step towards you. So you can take the first step towards someone else that has sinned against you or you have sinned against them. So how does it look to go and be reconciled with another person? You go with prayer and with a spirit of humility and empathy. That's how you go first. You prayerfully go. You go with a convicted heart, not a condemned heart. Condemnation is for the enemy. Conviction is for the spirit. Know the difference. You go to take ownership of how you have sinned against the other person with your actions, your anger, and your tongue. And you go to ask for forgiveness you go to ask for forgiveness. And asking for forgiveness is not simply saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry can mean, I'm sorry I ever met you. (laughs) I'm sorry can mean, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry can mean, I'm sorry I didn't hurt you more. Asking for forgiveness means, you say something like this, when I did this and said that, It hurt you, and it made you feel worthless. Please forgive me for wounding you with my words and my tongue. That's asking for forgiveness. That's taking responsibility because reconciliation, that builds life. That approach builds life. It builds connection because you're going to take ownership of what you have done, not pointing out what the other person has done. You take responsibility for what you have done. One 19th century preacher said, there's something more to this abandonment than the desertion of the old road. This old road represents your old life as a Christian. He says, we cannot turn from the old road as though nothing has been accomplished in it. A certain life has been lived and certain damage has been done. What about the damage? What about the damage? He says, a a, a colonel gave a lecture that is now forgotten. and And this colonel puts a challenge to the indocument of the Christian doctrine of forgiveness. This colonel says, if I rob Mr. X and God forgives me, how would that help Mr. X? I say that again. If I steal from Mr. X and God forgives me for stealing from Mr. X, how does that help? Mr. X, whom I robbed. He goes on to say, no man can leave the role where ruin has been created and turn away as if nothing has ever been done. The abandonment of the old role must be accomplished by ratifying the old role for such as restitution is possible. It's part of forsaking the old life. Here then is where repentance begins. Like reconciliation, restitution builds life when it has been broken by sin and restitution means restore, repair, replace what has been broken. That's what it means. Some of us think if I sin against someone, I ask God to forgive me, I'm good. No, you're not just good. You got to still make things right with that person. You still got to make things right with that person. Numbers five, verses six and seven says, Speak to the sons of Israel when a man or woman commits any sin of mankind acting unfaithfully against God, Lord, and that person is guilty. He shall confess his sins, which he has committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong and even adding one fifth of it and give it to whom he has wronged. Now, it's easy to read that verse and say, well, that's Old Testament. Restitution is an Old Testament idea, pastor. And we're under the new covenant. Well, Look at what Jesus says in verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Least your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until the full price, full penny has been paid. And what is that? That's financial restitution. Make right. You're wrong. What about Zacchaeus? I mean, you know the story of Zacchaeus, a tax collector, a man who made a living stealing from his own people because he worked for the Roman government. There was even a song written by, about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, wee little man he was. He climbed at the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when Christ got there, Christ looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry down. Today is my day to be your guest in your home. As Zacchaeus came down the tree. He stood there. And he says, Master, I give away half of my income to the poor, and if I'm caught cheating, I pay four times the damages. What is that? That's restitution for wrongs. Restoring, replacing what has been broken, what has been damaged. Jesus desires for his people to make restitution when their sins require. And it can be financial, material, are relational restitution is a fruit of repentance it makes things right it's easy to understand financial and material restitution because if you steal from someone and you get caught yeah you need to pay that stuff back what about relational restitution that isn't so easy because relational restitution means you take responsibility to restore broken relationships you take responsibility do you have broken relationships in your life are all your relationships healthy are all they all healthy if you have broken relationships in your life Jesus says you must take responsibility to make those relationships right that's what he's saying that's what he's saying relational restitution requires physical and emotional presence and energy it will require time from you it may require you going to counseling. It will require you fighting for, to bring healing and health and trust back into those relationships. Because restitution, it builds life when life is broken. This is for you kids. You need to take this to heart. Because some of you going to grow up you're going to be mad at your parents about something. You're going to go to counseling and say, my parents did this to me. But when you grow and become mature in your faith, Jesus is saying, seek Reconciliation. Make restitution. Because in relation to brokenness, everybody's at fault. Someone has something they can repent of. And so Christ is saying, for his people, he's giving you the tools. How do you make things right in these relationships? Because we all have relationships. Remember what his whole thing is, loving God and loving people. Because you're, you're going to always sin against people. They're going to sin against you. But we don't know how to make things right often when that happens. He's giving you a way to, how do you make it right? How do you make it right in your marriages? Parents, how do you make it right with your kids when you sin against them? How do you make it right in your families? How do you make it right in your, your friends, your relationship with your friends and your community? How do you make it right with people you don't like in the workplace? He's saying, go first, be reconciled. Take responsibility for what you've done. If there's damage there, make restitution for it. And people don't like that, restitution. But it is biblical. And Christ gives you an example of it. Repentance, the three R's is what I call them. Repentance, reconciliation, restitution are builders of the preservation of life. Think about what the churches would be like if we operated like that. Think about what Christianity, the testimony we can have is Christians operated like that. Because there's nothing that we can do to stop sinning against one another. But we can pursue health in a healthy way. We can make things right in a way that's healthy. How would your marriages be if that was true? How would your family be different if this was true? How would it be if, it's, if, it is, if we operated this way? These things they help us. They help us when life is broken, and there are a way that we can love God and love our neighbor as ourself. Because often when we say I want to love my neighbor, there is no flesh to it. Just a point. This is a phrase that we, we, we recite. Christ is giving you flesh. You want to love your neighbor. Seek reconciliation with them. You want to love your neighbor? Seek restitution with them when you have wronged them. That is practical application of what it means to love people. And the greatest thing about Christians is that we have the Holy Spirit that enables us to do it. The Holy Spirit lives in us, and he enables us to do it. That's a wonderful thing. I'll leave you with this, me and my dad we uh don't have the healthiest of relationships, and now that he's sick and in a nursing home, it's probably not going to be what I want it to be, but living with him as a kid was a hard life because he was a disciplinarian, and now I deserve every whipping I got, so I'm not going to deny that, but he was he never really was emotionally close with me and so he never told me he loved me uh, never told me he was proud of me growing up but he worked hard he provided he taught me how to be a man he taught me how to cook and how to clean how to provide for myself he taught me all those things the work ethic that i have i got all that from him and so over the years god has brought more healing to our relationship and when i became a christian that was one step because I was able to forgive him a lot, of, a lot of stuff because I saw my dad has issues just like me. And another healing took place when I graduated from, um, from seminary. I got a card from him. I think I may have shared this with you before. He says, you're the man that I wish I could have been. And so when I, I still have that card. And what that shows me is that the, the, the animosity that I have for my dad, it, it, it slowly went away, and God is trying to repair that. And, and, and a couple of father days ago, I went to Georgia, and I thanked my dad. I said, Dad, he, his health was still bad. I said, Dad, I want to thank you for all the things you did do right. And so what were I doing? I was making restitution, relational restitution with my dad to let him know, yeah, it wasn't perfect, but there were Part of you is still in me. Part of who you are is still in me. Part of man I am is because of who you are and how you parent and raise me. And so, and so I'm telling you, while they are alive, make it right. That's all that you can do. While people are alive, do your best to make it right. Because when they're dead, they're dead. And so it was a friend of mine who encouraged me to go do that for my dad. Another Christian guy said, you need to go talk to your dad. And I didn't want to, but he encouraged me to do it. And I'm glad I did because it brought us a little more closer together as father and son. It might not ever be what I want it to be, but it's better than what it was. And so that is just one example of the kind of relational restitution that can be made in your relationships. Let us pray.